A warm welcome to everyone. You are watching CNN. I am Paula Newton in New York, and we begin with the latest on the war in Ukraine. This hour, the U.N. Secretary General is seeing for himself the horrors in Ukraine ahead of a meeting with President Zelensky. Antonio Guterres told CNN the war will continue unless, in his words, Russia decides to end it, and it won't be resolved by meetings. Now, at this hour, he has seen for himself the devastation in Urpin and Bucha. Listen. When uh, I see those destroyed buildings, I, I must say what I feel, I imagine my family in one of those houses that is now destroyed and black. I see my, my granddaughters running away in panic, part of the family eventually killed. Our heart, of course, stays with the victims, our condolences to their families, but our emotions are, there is no way a war can be acceptable in the 21st century. Look at that. All right, Secretary General there, uh, clearly emotional as he toured that scene, and yet reports of atrocities just keep coming out of Donetsk now. The U.S. says it is credible information that Russian forces executed Ukrainians, think about this, while they were trying to surrender. The intelligence suggests the victims' hands were bound and they were murdered execution style. And overnight, an explosion rocked the Russian-occupied city of Kherson in southern Ukraine. Now, Russian media is blaming Ukrainian forces for the attack, which appeared near the main TV broadcasting center. Ukrainian media reports that Russian TV channels had stopped working in the city. Russian appointed administrator said the city would not be returning to Ukrainian control. As Russian shelling intensifies right across eastern Ukraine, civilians trapped in the region continue to rely on police officers determined to bring them the bare essentials. Sam Kiley was on the ground with them and has our story. Sverodonetsk, on the front line with Russia. It's an artillery front line. Basement, let's get into the basement. Local police are delivering aid to civilians unable to leave. There's no time to wait out the bombardment. There's no likely end to the shelling either. Supplies need delivering and fast. She tells me there are three people next door, including a granny of 92. Upstairs, a bedridden woman. She says that normally they stay in their flat and only use the basement when it's bad. Thank you for not forgetting us, she adds. The urgency of these sorts of deliveries cannot be exaggerated. Just in this block, there's mostly old people. One gentleman's dying of cancer in front of his wife. She's saying she's living in a double hell. Since we've been here, they've been, I don't know, five, six, eight. Uh, impacts very, very close. And almost every tree, every corner, every bit of this local neighbourhood has got the signs of recent impacts. The Russians are just a kilometre, maybe three away. Russian guns are so close you can hear the whole arc of their shells. 
From Kyiv to Mariupol, from Kharkiv to here, this is the Russian way of war. Pound civilians, flatten cities, and maybe occupy the ashes. Alexander says, we're in danger now, they're shelling us, so it could come at any moment and shrapnel could hurt us. We try to hide there, in the bomb shelter. Two months of war has driven these people underground, and there's no end in sight. The fear, Alexander confesses, he tries to keep inside, but it creeps out. There's one more delivery that the police have got to make, but every time we try to get out the front door of this building, there's another impact, there's another one now. Uh, they're saying that the hospital, which is nearby, is uh, under heavy shelling. We were planning to go there. We can't get through, nor indeed at the moment can we even get out of this bunker. The hospital was hit. Images of the damage done that morning, posted online by the local administration. Officials said that one civilian was killed, others injured, and several floors were badly damaged. The humanitarian effort goes on. This woman asks only for the basics of existence, water and candles for light. Good job. You do this every day? Uh, yes. Bogdan tells me that most people left here now have nowhere else to go. They've lived here all their lives and don't want to abandon their homes. Do you think the Russians are going to take uh, Severodonetsk? Never, he says. We will stand our ground to the last man. No one will leave here. That may be a dangerous claim. It's likely that Ukrainians will destroy this bridge to hold up the invasion. And anyone still here would then be trapped in Russian hands. All right, Sam has moved to the city of Kramatorsk and he joins me now with the latest. Um, it really is chilling to see that report. And I know given all your war experience that you certainly felt what the civilians there have been going through for such a long time now. You know, uh, so many defense analysts right now, including the Institute of War, say that, look, this is going to be a much more methodical campaign right now on the part of the Russians. They are making advances, but it is a lot through that indiscriminate shelling. I'm going to lean into your experience here, Sam. I mean, what do you make of the kind of progress uh, right now that Russian forces uh, could be making through that region? Well, I think one of the first things to think about here is how thinly stretched Ameri uh, Russian forces really are. They're in an enormously long uh, front line. It must be close to 500 miles uh, all the way from Izium in the north in a great big arc all the way down to Mikhailov in the south. Now, they're going to prioritize trying to capture where I am here in Kramatorsk, but they've also said that they want to hang on uh, to or even expand their control along uh, the south, uh, southern coastline, perhaps all the way to the border with Moldova. They're being held up at Mikhailiv. Now, then we need to dial back and say, well, what is it that they would like to hold on to? They'd like to capture and hold on to the Donbass, the two oblast provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk, of which they already control 60 to 80 percent, including that uh, they would like to capture Kramatorsk, where I am. They probably almost certainly will never want to give up on Kherson because that controls uh, the water supply into the Crimean Peninsula, which they've illegally annexed uh, back in 2014. So in that context, 
Uh, they are spread thinly, so they are going to be moving incrementally. They are going to try and use their, at the moment, uh, domination of artillery uh, in order to uh, overwhelm the Ukrainian forces who are spread equally thin. That could be rebalanced if the uh, more modern NATO-style weapons that have been promised start flooding in to the Ukrainians and they can put them to good effect. So therefore, from the Ukrainian perspective, it's a race against time. The longer the Russians get to use their kind of technique of relentless pounding, pounding of Ukrainian civilian areas and Ukrainian positions, uh, the more likely they are to, if not prevail, hold the territory that they've already captured. And that's the critical thing, I think, looking forward. Uh, there is a real sense among Ukrainian supporters, at any rate, that they may be able to turn the tide of this war entirely and push the Russians right back. That, I think, may be something of a pipe dream. But what they're trying to avoid is a long-term frozen war of the sort that we saw established back in 2014, which means that the Russians sit here in perpetuity, uh, permanently destabilizing uh, a nascent democracy here in the rest of Ukraine, Paula. Uh, yeah, uh, clearly NATO is concerned about that. We just even had the NATO Secretary General saying mm -hmm. that, look, this conflict could go on for years. Uh, just turning, though, quickly, Sam, to the Ukrainian forces themselves, you do mention how difficult this uh, will be for them. Critically, do you believe that at this point in time they're confident they will be rearmed in the way they need to be by uh, the U.S. and its allies? They do seem to be increasingly confident. Certainly that's the message coming from uh, President Zelensky. He's still saying we're not getting enough and we're not getting enough quickly enough. But they are getting the sorts of weapons that can really make a difference. If you look at how, what an incredible difference the Enlor and Javelin, these shoulder-launched anti-armor missiles made, they turned back, entirely turned back the assault uh, on Kyiv using those, just pretty much just those weapons. On top of that, you've got the, the game-changing uh, Turkish-built uh, drones that the Ukrainians have. You've got you can assume every single shred of intelligence coming from every possible Western source is being fed to the Ukrainians. And then on top of that, they're now even the Germans supplying uh, armoured anti-aircraft uh, capabilities, the British coordinating an enormous response to try and push a lot of these very important weapons, uh, suicide drones, so-called. These, you know, these, these, these weapons are very, very simple to use, but can have devastating effect. Now, they, while they can, they need to take that to technological advantage and put it to best use against the Russians before the Russians catch up. The Russians, it would appear, have been over-boasting about their technological capabilities and we now have seen the results. But what they do have is the old-fashioned mass-killing apparatus and that is what they're putting into lethal effect at the moment. Sam, really appreciate you giving us a state of play as it stands right now. Sam Kali for us there in Ukraine. Now, two European energy firms, meantime, are in talks with Gazprom about how to pay for Russian natural gas while still complying with EU sanctions. And as we've been reporting, Russia cut off supplies to Poland and Bulgaria for re rejecting its demand to pay for gas in rubles. So what are we looking at here in terms of the alternatives? Claire Sebastian has been digging into this uh, for us. Now, uh, Claire, those companies are in talks with Gazprom. Crucially, the issue is they're going to try and keep that gas flowing and the payments coming. Is there a potential workaround right now? 
Yeah, Paula, this is a very grey area, and perhaps pointedly so. You know, we were talking when this was first announced, this payment mechanism that Russia has put in place, about the fact that it might leave room for both sides to sort of save face, to, to agree to something without looking like they're capitulating. And this might be what's happening now. Because if you look at the EU has said there might be a potential workaround that, that might avoid uh, violating sanctions. Both companies that have come out and said that they're in talks with Gazprom uh, have said the same. Uniper, the, the, the German gas importer, has said, we consider a payment conversion compliant with sanctions and the Russian decree to be possible. Continuing Uniper will continue to pay in euros. And that is crucial because the Russian decree doesn't actually, you know, force companies to pay in rubles. What it does is it makes them open two accounts at Gazprom Bank, one in euros or dollars and one in rubles. They then pay the money into the euro or dollar account as normal. Gazprom Bank carries out the conversion into rubles and then deposits it back into the buyer's ruble account. So the question is, for the European Union and for these gas companies, is does their role in the transaction end with the euro or dollar account, or are they still involved at the point at which the money from the ruble account is then transferred to Gazprom? So it's complicated. There's a lot of questions around these two accounts and, and when the transaction ends, but it's clear that there is sort of momentum now to try to find a compromise clearly accelerated by what happened uh, with ga that gas being cut off to, to Poland and Bulgaria. You and I both know breaks the spirit of the sanctions, categorically does so, I would argue. And yet we're supposed to have, you know, a, a Europe that is moving away from Russian fossil fuels. Yeah, this is what Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission uh, president, said yesterday. She said the era of Russian fossil fuels in Europe is coming to an end. I think they, you know, they've said that before. The question, of course, is when and is it going to be quicker? Because we've now really seen it get real and we've really seen Russia is willing to turn off the taps and to weaponize its energy exports. And I think the one to watch here, Paula, as always, is Germany, which is uh, Europe's biggest economy. Uh, the German economy minister has said that, you know, he really thinks now is the time to try get to, to consider things that were pre previously thought unrealistic, like, for example, stopping gas imports from Russia. It's clear that they cannot do that straight away, that it is going to take a lot of infrastructure development, a, a, a lot of sort of lateral thinking, essentially, going into renewables, things like that. He says he's urging Germany to speed up the, the building of an LNG, a liquefied natural gas mm -hmm. terminal, to ramp up renewables. But look, it's clear that it, this is going to have to take some, some difficult decisions from Europe, because the only way they're going to get through without Russian gas is to cut back on demand. And we're getting close to the point, Paula, at which they're going to have to start preparing for winter, building up that gas storage. So it's getting really real. And I think this is going to involve some quick decisions. We do know finally that the French environment minister is convening a meeting on May 2nd with ministers in charge uh, of energy in Europe. So it's clear that talks on this are beginning pretty soon. Yeah, they need a new plan as this will involve economic pain. Claire Sebastian for us, thank you for taking us through that. And now we want to look at the markets around the world. U.S. futures are trying to hold on to gains after, this is a bombshell, folks, new first quarter numbers showed the economy in the United States contracted, yes, shrunk by 1.4% annualized. That's a huge downturn from 6.9% growth in the first quarter, you see there the markets, as I say, trying to stay in the green. Asian markets, meantime, closed higher on optimism that Beijing will boost infrastructure spending enough to give the Chinese economy a badly needed lift as COVID lockdowns and mass testing there continue. Now, that slowdown in the first quarter in the U.S. economy's worst performance since the pandemic-driven recession of 2020. Rahel Solomon has been following this bombshell for us. That top-line number, incredibly shocking. And it definitely puts recession fears in perspective.
shocking and stunning, Paula. To give you some context, the consensus among U.S. economists was 1.1% growth. So to see the reading come in at negative 1.4%, safe to say not a lot of folks were expecting it. In fact, this morning, uh, Deutsche Bank report I was reading before the numbers came out, and they put their consensus at exactly 0.0. And I remember thinking, well, that's awfully bearish. Deutsche Bank, of course, the uh, first bank to predict or to forecast a recession, and yet this number coming in even worse than they expected. So let's take a look at some of the factors being cited for the number that we're seeing today. Uh, Omicron, first quarter that Omicron is really being reflected in the data. Decrease in private spending. Uh, The note pointing out that that was led by decreases in wholesale trade, mainly motor vehicles. Of course, the auto industry has been really crushed by supply chain issues, by chip issues. So those issues persist. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine and its impact on gas prices. We've seen gas prices surge. So you put all of that together, and it sort of explains how we have gotten to negative 1.4%, but certainly not something we were expecting. Also, when you consider it compared to last quarter of growth of almost 7%, 6.9%, and it really explains sort of why it's stunning. And yet, Paula, in the midst of all of this, futures are still higher this morning. How could that be? Well, perhaps because the consumer is still strong. We know how important the consumer is to the U.S. economy and economies around the world. And we're still seeing strong spending on things like services, on things like travel. We've heard that from companies that reported this week, like Visa. We've heard it from the airlines. So perhaps that, the the all-important consumer coming to the rescue yet again, sort of lifting markets this morning. But uh, to your point, Paula, no one was expecting a negative 1.4% contraction this quarter. The expectation had been a positive 1.1%. Yeah, and I argue this will have some political implications as well. Rahel, I don't have a lot of time, but the problem here is it's not just the U.S. economy, right? Yeah, in fact, and a lot of the issues that we're experiencing here in the U.S., our European counterparts are experiencing as well. Of course, the war in Ukraine, uh, supply chain issues, the Omicron variant. It's part of the reason why we're starting to see governments around the world and entities around the world slash growth forecast. Germany, Europe's largest economy, slashing its growth forecast to 2.2 percent. The IMF recently slashing global growth to 3.6 percent. So we're, uh, Paula, all in this together. I don't know that anyone uh, feels necessarily better about it because of that, but a lot of the factors impacting us here in the States, impacting our neighbors as well in Europe and beyond. Yeah, uh, Rahel, thanks so much. I know you'll keep a close eye on it throughout the day. Appreciate it. Coming up here for us, the war in Ukraine is having a devastating impact on these children thousands of miles away in Africa. Next, the president of Afrixem Bank on what can be done to help. And welcome back. The World Bank is warning Russia's war on Ukraine is contributing to an historic shock to commodity markets. It expects energy prices to jump more than 50 percent. But this is key. Food prices are still expected to rise 22 percent this year alone. A recent U.N. report on the impact on Africa said that the war presents a severe risk to most of the continent's economies, with more than 40 countries facing one or more forms of emergency. This month, uh, Africa Bank launched a $4 billion program to help African countries cope with the effects of war. Joining me now, it's President Benedict Roma. And I thank you for joining us, sir. $4 billion, certainly much needed capital here. And yet, what are the greatest challenges you are facing? You know, the UN report made clear nearly three 
three of every four countries uh, on the continent will suffer severe impacts from the war in Ukraine. Yeah, thank you very much, Paula. Uh, the war is being fought in Ukraine, but the impact uh, has been uh, that Africans are getting hungrier by the day. Uh, you have children who do not have enough food. Uh, you have uh, farmers who cannot have access to fertilizers. And of course, uh, energy prices have gone up, uh, uh, complicating the development challenges we have on the continent. So uh, the $4 billion uh, facility, which our board approved in the form of uh, a crisis response, uh, to what is going on in Ukraine is to provide a platform to enable us to mobilize even more money to support the continent. As we speak today, uh, we have requests for financing exceeding $15 billion from across the continent. So what we have decided to do was to use these $4 billion to mobilize additional funding uh, by um, trying to leverage uh, partnerships we have around the world. But beyond that, we have also seen uh, that some countries uh, that need fertilizer to be able to mitigate uh, future uh, food, um, uh, the future uh, food uh, problems do not even have access. So we have also decided to put in place a digital platform to enable food procurement of fertilizers and food. This will enable us re, uh, discuss and negotiate better prices as a collective, As because uh, you know the continent has 55 countries. Some of these countries are very small. So if they go individually to the global markets at this time, they pay so much. Some of them are island economies. So when we pull all our demand together, we are able then to negotiate better prices, and then we support them through the $4 billion financing we are providing. I don't have a lot of time left, but in terms of uh, how you see this working out during this growing se this season, I, I will add that your continent as well is dealing with conflict and even climate change issues. Do you see production being able to be increased in Africa this year to try and help with the food and security issues? Uh, unfortunately, Paulette, uh, we do not see production increasing because we do not have access to agrochemicals. Uh, uh, most of the, uh, some of the countries import their fertilizers from um, Russia and they cannot have access anymore. Um, and even those um, who, uh, who have funding uh, do not have anywhere to buy these fertilizers. So we expect that even the food prices will worsen in the future. That is indeed a very stark assessment from you. Uh, we appreciate it, though, and we'll continue to keep an eye on it. As I said, international organizations saying that the next few months, if not years ahead, will be very tough for Africa. Appreciate your uh, insights there. Next uh, for us here, demand and supply cuts. We speak to a top EU official as Russia turns off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. We ask a solution be reached. So right now, the head of the UN is in Ukraine to meet its president and see some of the devastation there firsthand. There are some, these are, in fact, we're bringing you some of the latest images of Antonio Guterres' visit to Bucha. 
Speaking to CNN, Mr. Guterres said the war will go on until Russia decides to end it, adding that a serious political agreement must be reached. This, as Washington says, it does have credible information that Russian forces executed Ukrainians while they were trying to surrender. We will continue to bring you the very latest developments right here on CNN. And as European companies hold talks with Gazprom over how to avoid having their Russian gas supply switched off, Hungary has told CNN it will use a payment scheme set out by Moscow. Brussels says it may be possible to comply with Russia's demand for payment in rubles without breaking EU sanctions. Hungary's foreign minister told our Richard Quest the priority is serving his country. The thing is the following, that um, gas supply and oil supply of a country is not a matter of philosophy or communication or ideology or politics. This is a matter of uh, physics. Uh, the fact is that we are determined by infrastructure. 85% of our gas supply comes from Russia and 65% of uh, our oil supply comes from Russia. Why? Because this is being determined by infrastructure. It's, this is not for fun. We have not chosen this uh, situation. Simply, this is the physical situation in Central Europe. There are no alternative gas sources, no alternative uh, uh, delivery routes, which would make it possible for us to get rid of the uh, Russian oil and Russian gas in the upcoming couple of years. We have done a lot in order to diversify. We have uh, built all the interconnectors with six of the seven neighboring countries. So in case there's a new gas source being explored somewhere in the neighborhood, we would be happy to buy gas from there. If ExxonMobil had um, made right. its final decision to, uh, to exploit gas uh, from the Black Sea in Romania, now we would be in a much better situation. But since there have been no new gas resources and no new gas fields explored in the last years, unfortunately, we have no other choice than rely on the Russian uh, energy sources in the upcoming uh, couple of years. But this is once again not, not for fun. This is the physical determination for our country. But there is a feeling, there is a view, a sort of a, a perception that Hungary's position is not as united with the EU as other countries, or indeed with NATO, for example, with, the, for example, the transmission or the uh, distribution of military weapons through Hungary, which uh, until now you, you, you've not allow, allow, allowed to take place. The view is Hungary is not united with the rest. You know, uh, I think you made it very rightly at the beginning because you said it's a perception, it's a view, it's a feeling, but this is not the reality. Hungary has given its consent to all the five uh, packages of sanctions so far in the uh, European uh, Union. We have given our consent. We just made it very clear that since this physical determination I, I tried to uh, describe to you in my previous answer, uh, in order to uh, preserve uh, the uh, European unity, do not come forward with sanctions uh, which would uh, stop uh, our country and stop our economy uh, to operate. All right, we now want to speak to someone who is dealing with these issues firsthand. Thierry Burton is the European Commissioner for the Internal Market, and he joins us now live from Brussels. So good to have you uh, speak to these issues right now as they're at the forefront. To the sanctions first, Putin has now taken the first steps towards, some would argue, weaponizing uh, Russian energy, cutting off Poland and Bulgaria for not paying in rubles. Now, I know that the EU has called this blackmail, but clearly Russia is getting its money for energy. Is this in any way, shape or form, in your opinion, breaking the spirit 
of the sanctions, if not the letter of the law there? Well, you know, I think President von der Leyen was uh, extremely clear, uh, uh, by the way, yesterday when she, she mentioned that, of course, uh, today uh, regarding the contract that uh, we have with uh, Russia on gas, 97% uh, uh, of this contract uh, um, uh, stipulate very clearly that uh, they have to be uh, paid either in euro and on dollars. So they will have to be paid in euro and dollars. And if you don't do this, it's, uh, it was clear it will be uh, an infringement. So that's the way it is. And yet there seems to be some work around here. I mean, if you ask me very clearly, EU nations are funding Russia's war. Do you see anything in the near term that will change that in the next few months? And I know the work around that is going through the banks. But the bottom line is Russia is in a fashion getting payment in rubles. And Hungary, we just heard from them saying, look, we will pay in rubles any way we have to. We need Russian energy. You know, there are sanctions. Uh, this, these sanctions have been voted, uh, and of course, uh, they have to be applied. By the way, they have been voted by both uh, US and EU, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that will have to be put in place. Uh, but, you know, I think the, more, the most important thing is that um, uh, there's two things to see, uh, to see this, uh, this uh, uh, subject, which is, by the way, uh, 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 a very important one. Uh, the first one is that, of course, uh, we have the sanctions, and uh, and uh, I could tell you that uh, we are working in the EU on a six package of sanctions. This will be discussed soon. Uh, we are working on it, and uh, and of course, regarding what happening in uh, in in Ukraine, uh, uh, it will be uh, um, the decision of our political leaders to uh, to decide if we move uh, uh, on. Uh, but as, at least uh, we have been instructed to work on it. Uh, the second thing is that, of course, we will see what we put in the sanctions. The second thing is that, of course, uh, uh, we know from the other side, um, uh, Putin is uh, using this as a weapon. So, okay. Uh, by the way, he did it yesterday. So, uh, uh, maybe tomorrow it will be done in Hungary. Nobody knows. So, I think our duty, and my duty personally, as a commission in charge of internal market, is to be prepared to this event. So, I could tell you that uh, we worked uh, very hard by the way, since day one of this uh, of this tragedy of this war, uh, to uh, to see uh, what we will do um, if, uh, for a reason or another, uh, uh, we will stop buying gas uh, from 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 uh, from Russia. Personally, I think we should do it when, as soon as we can, of course. But let's uh, let's imagine that it could happen tomorrow. So we worked. We import today 155 uh, BCM a billion. Uh, cubic meters per year. So we have now an extensive plan to see uh, what we will do, including, by the way, importing uh, uh, um, uh, uh, gas from the US. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and and we are importing a lot now, for more than 50 billion uh, uh, cubic meters. But we have other solutions. And, you know, that's like, if I may say so, an economy of war. Uh, of course, you could beg of course, you should say, well, I hope that a missile will not uh, uh, come on my factory. But if it does, what do we do? So here we are, and we worked extremely hard. Uh, and uh, we have to be ready. And uh, uh, at least it's my job uh, to propose solutions to be ready. And in terms of being ready, energy security can be existential security. I know this is also critical, and it's a matter of defense. Do you think the time has arrived that Europe, you know, come close to energy self-sufficiency. I know you have pointed out in the past that it's possible, that it is a challenge, but it needs to happen sooner. So I ask you a direct question. You still need Russian energy now. How soon do you think you could move away? Are we talking months or years? Of course, uh, uh, um, uh, 
I mean, I, I, will, I will give you a, a very simple question. Uh, 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 the lecture will be the, the, the easiest to transition, but we will transition. We are transitioning. We are accelerating. But uh, uh, regarding my, uh, my previous uh, uh, statement and comments, we are ready and we are working to be ready if this will happen tomorrow. Again, that's our mission. And of course, we will have other sources of energy. We will increase it. Uh, by the way, some uh, uh, maybe like, you know, in some countries in Europe, uh, um, uh, it has been decided to shut down nuclear plants. By the way, some already decided, like uh, Belgium, uh, to postpone this shutdown uh, for two plants. In, in, uh, in, in Germany, we have three ones uh, we are supposed to be, to be shut down. That's another possibility. Of course, we have also possibility with coal. Uh, we don't like it, of course, because it will be against uh, our commitment. Uh, mm -hmm. towards uh, uh, the Green, the green uh, Deal strategy and the Paris Agreement, but for a time being, maybe one or two or three years. So we have solutions. And of course, we will need to use all our uh, intelligence and all of our, our um, uh, willingness to work together. And you know, the key word here is solidarity. We have been able to do this for many crises. What we have in, in common in Europe is solidarity. And we know, of course, that some countries right. will have difficulties not to do it alone, but we are working also on a much, much broader package when we will use our solidarity to help the one who will need it. Uh, I want to turn now to another topic, another headline, Elon Musk's buyout of Twitter. He wants a more open platform where free speech is paramount. You know, you tweeted pointedly and then you followed that up. You know, I quote you here, Elon, there are rules. You are welcome, but there are rules. It's not your rules which will apply here. How do you envision a compromise with someone who's going to take this company private and claims to be a champion of free speech. By the way, uh, uh, I will tweet the same thing to uh, uh, to Mark or, or to Sundar uh, 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 because since last it's very it's very soon. Uh, that's why I'm happy to be able to uh, to, to or that you gave me the opportunity to speak as early as today, because uh, since last Friday, after two years of very hard work. We have a very comprehensive uh, regulation in Europe saying that, of course, uh, for digital platforms, by the way, whoever they are, uh, could be Twitter, could be Facebook, could be whoever, could be European platforms, Asian platforms, if you want to enjoy uh, our uh, digital market. By the way, we are the biggest uh, today in the free world uh, 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 with 450 million uh, uh, iceboards in Europe versus 110 in the US. So if you want to enjoy this market, you're absolutely welcome but we have no rules to protect our freedom of speech, to mm -hmm. protect our people, to protect our children, to fight against hate speeches, to fight against fake news, to fight against pedopornography, to fight against a counterfeit product. This is put in place now. It's not too complex. It will, it will need, by the way, to have openness on your algorithm, but it will be true for everyone. So my, my job is not to, uh, to, uh, to see who is the shoulder of what, my job is to make sure that we, the company who would like to enter into market is absolutely welcome, but these are our rules. Terry Breton, thank you so much. Really appreciate your perspective on what is a busy news day. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now coming up after the break for us, uh, honey. I shrank the economy. No, don't blame me, but these numbers are shocking. How um, it will show how America's economic machine could now be going into reverse. We have analysis next. You won't want to miss it.
All right, those economic numbers from the United States, ugly. That's all I have to say, ugly. I say growth, right? That was not growth. It's actually a contraction. Yes, GDP declined between January and March at an annualized 1.4%. You should really not be seeing a minus sign there, and yet we are minus and red. Growth was predicted to be, again, growth, 1.1%. That was following that huge jump, 6.9% in the previous quarter. David Kelly is chief global strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm not exactly sure if this shocked you. I'll ask you right off the bat. Some are already saying this is an anomaly. Okay, even given that, it certainly speaks to the fragility of the U.S. economy right now. It, it has some important messages. Uh, I wasn't shocked by it. We were thinking uh, going into this week the number would come in at zero. And then when we got some numbers yesterday on trade and inventories, it looked like it would come in negative. So I wasn't shocked by it. Uh, and I do think that it is an anomaly. But last quarter was 6.9%. Uh, this quarter, a minus 1.4. If you average those together, it's about two and a half, you know, two and a half to three percent growth. And that's truly what's going on here. We had a lot of accounting issues between the fourth quarter and the first quarter, which have given this result. But uh, this does suggest that we are transitioning from a very fast growing economy in 2021 to something much slower. So the Federal Reserve needs to take it easy here. This is not a booming economy, and it can only take so much pain here. Um, the second thing I'd say is uh, just look at what's going on here. We've got a, a very, very negative trade number. We're buying stuff from all over the world. They're not buying our stuff. The dollar is too high. So I think this, is, this suggests that the exchange rate is just too high, and the dollar will need to come down. So I think there's a lot of really interesting information in this. It's not as scary as I think some people think. I do expect growth to bounce back in the second quarter, but we should we'll look at these numbers very carefully. And I hear you, especially on the trade and obviously that U.S. dollar, which is incredibly high, which, as you know, poses a lot of problems for American companies. When we talk about the Fed, though, and they are in quite a bind, what do you expect given the fact that, look, you know, Chairman Powell has already said that perhaps a half percentage point increase is on the table, a half well, yes, it is, but it's a half from a very low level. I think, it, I think it's okay for the Federal Reserve to raise rates by 50 basis points or half a percent in May next, next week, which I think they will do, and then perhaps do that again in June. But thereafter, I think they need to go easy. Uh, I know inflation is very high, but the, what people need to realize is inflation will actually fade you know, going into next year, the year after, and you don't want to kill the economy just to kill inflation faster. You know, that I, I wrote a note on, on LinkedIn this week called Killing It Softly, the way to deal with inflation. And, and that's what you've got to do. I mean, just raise rates a, a bit, but don't try and win the whole war this year because you don't want to tip the economy into recession. And I think the message from this, this morning's report is this economy is not quite as strong and vulnerable as you think it is. You do need to take it easy here. And I hear you. Things uh, will even out. Uh, so but you're 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 on the record then half a percentage point will still go through. I, I think so, because the Federal Reserve should not have been surprised by this number either. And they really want to make a statement about uh, inflation at this point. I just think they shouldn't get too hawkish here. Um, but I, you know, I think half a percent is likely next week, despite this number. Listen, I don't have a lot of time left, and I know you don't have a crystal ball. I look at what's going on in China, and I see more supply chain disruptions. When you talk about inflation and how much more we have to maneuver there, I know what you mean by killing it softly. And yet, do you worry that we'll still get more shocks? And again, they are shocks. Yes, I worry that it's going to be prolonged, but uh, but the prices of, of everything are high. And what that does is it encourages production. So I don't expect us to be looking at $100 a barrel oil 
this time next year. I think oil prices will come down. I think the computer chips will get into the cars. Used car prices will come down. So we need to have some patience here. Inflation didn't come upon us overnight. It's going to take some time to fade, but the Federal Reserve needs to take it easy because the biggest risk here is they, they've waited too long and now they do too much and tip the economy unnecessarily into recession in 2023. They really should try to avoid that. Sure thing. Yeah. And, and the labor market might get a little bit uh, better along the way as well, which will help inflation. Uh, David Kelly, really appreciate you weighing in here on what was a shocker for many of us this morning. Thanks so much. Thank you. Still to come for us, Mattel has sent Barbie into space. Now it is supporting refugee Ukrainian children and their families as Russia's war continues. I will speak to Mattel's CEO about its efforts next. Strong first quarter earnings from Mattel, despite global supply chain issues impacting many companies around the world. We were just talking about them. The toy maker reporting net sales were up 19% for the first quarter. But it said its goals take into account any unexpected disruptions to that supply chain, market volatility and uncertainties that have been related to the pandemic and in some cases are ongoing. And as Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues, Mattel has paused all its shipments to Russia and announced it would contribute $1 million in toys and cash to support organizations helping Ukrainian refugee children and their families. Chairman and CEO uh, Inon Kreis joins me now. Uh, I want to thank you here. And, and before we get to some of the other issues on the table, your hot take there on GDP. In your guidance, you mentioned those supply chain disruptions. Do you see more turbulence ahead? And what does that say in terms of the economy's weakness? You know, a negative number that took many by surprise. Yeah, for, uh, thank you for having me. Um, we are very focused on managing our supply chain, and this has been a real contributor, an important contributor to our success. Our momentum continued in the first quarter, and we saw double-digit growth for Barbie, Hot Wheels, and Fisher Price. In fact, this was a record, um, uh, one of our strongest quarters, our record quarter, first quarter, in terms of profitability and, and the revenue. We started the second quarter with strong consumer demand, the full-year outlook is also strong, and we expect to grow market share. So overall, an excellent start of the year, and we're firmly in growth mode, carefully and smartly and thoughtfully managing our supply chain. You don't see the turbulence then that the broader market sees right now in, G- in the GDP growth? Well, it's not that we are not seeing supply chain issues, but we are able to manage through them and leverage our capabilities, our scale and expertise This is core to our competence and something that we do really well. So we are able to manage through the disruption and work in collaboration with our retail partners to make sure that that there is product on shelves to meet consumer demand. So given that there are reports that you're in talks with private equity about a potential sale, uh, how would you characterize those talks at this moment? And I'm really curious, uh, uh, given that you say things are going well, how this potential sale would then help you manage growth going forward, how to better manage growth going forward? Well, as you know, we don't comment on uh, speculation and we are focused on executing our strategy. We're seeing growth in our business. Our strategy has worked very well throughout the, uh, the, uh, the last, over the last four years. As we transition the company, we're now operating as a high-performing toy company, an IP-driven high-performing toy company, and seeing tremendous growth opportunities for the company. But would those growth opportunities really expand, you think, if you had more freedom in terms of a different structure, a different financial structure, a different ownership structure? 
Well, I can't comment on uh, these speculations, but we are focused on executing our strategy and feel very confident about our growth trajectory. We just reiterated our guidance for the year and goals for 2023, and we're stay, staying focused on executing our strategy. Uh, you, we had discussed uh, the fact that you did stop uh, all uh, shipments to Russia. You are doing what you can to help out in, in the war effort. In terms of these uh, global shocks going forward, how has your company responded? Because, again, we do also have these issues in China as well, with the supply chains perhaps being impacted there. Well, as it relates to Russia and Ukraine, let me say first that our thoughts are with all those who are suffering. As you mentioned at the beginning, we took significant steps to support um, those who are uh, impacted by by this war. We stand with the Ukrainian people and support organizations on the front line uh, and in neighboring countries, aiding refugees, um, uh, children and families. uh, We also had a retailer donation program across Europe with 100% of proceeds going to relief relief efforts. And uh, we remain hopeful for peace. uh, And our thoughts are all with all all those who are uh, uh, suffering. This is something that we are managing as part of our business. Even with the impact in uh, Russia and Ukraine, we're seeing growth that will offset those declines in in, um, Russia and Ukraine and have maintained our guidance and expectation for a strong year. All right. And for now, we will leave it there. I have noted your no comment on a potential sale, but we'll continue to watch this carefully, especially, as you said, uh, as the growth outlook for your company, at least, remains quite strong. Uh, Inan Kreis, Chairman and CEO of Mattel, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. And that is it for our show. We will say the markets continue to try and and come off of this 1.4 percentage decrease on GDP in the United States. I want to thank you for joining us. Connect the World is next with Eleni Giocos. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.